Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer, and today on The Breakdown, we're being joined by a woman who made history when she took over as president of the United Farm Workers in 2018, the first female to lead that storied labor union, and the first immigrant woman to lead a national union in U.S. history. We are thrilled to have Teresa Romero joining us. She's a Mexican immigrant tasked with advocating for the people who put food on our tables but are often forgotten, and she actually started at UFW as an assistant to the president. So we'll find out how she ended up in charge of the whole thing (laughs) and what she's focusing on at a time of great uncertainty for the labor movement. But first, Scott, uh, more information trickling in about this burgeoning Senate race next year to replace Dianne Feinstein. You reported just uh, this morning on a new poll out. What do we know? Yeah, so this uh, is a poll by Berkeley IGS, uh, Mark DiCamillo, a well-known pollster in the state of California. And we can't overemphasize, Marisa, this is a snapshot. You know, this is very early. And really what this is in some ways, it is an indication of name ID. How well known are these folks? And I should say also this poll was only of Democrats and no party preference Mm -hmm. voters, no Republicans. So just keep that in mind. And there were two versions of it, too. There was one with Rokana, one without, because there's been talk of him getting in. But bottom line, in both of those, both versions, Adam Schiff is first. Uh, with Con- without Kana, he's at 23%, followed by Katie Porter at 20%. Uh, percent, and then Barbara Lee is a distant third with 8%. And when you add Kana into the mix, it's pretty much the same. Lee drops uh, about a couple of percentage points to six. Kana's at four. Uh, but the, the big news, 39% in this poll are undecided. Uh, and mean. so there's a lot of... A lot of room for all these candidates to grow because they're actually their their voter image is pretty good. Yeah, not a ton of surprise there. I mean, we've been talking about this a little bit here internally, Scott. I think sometimes those of us in the mix of politics over you know, estimate how well known folks are because, you know, they're not doing the jobs we do every day um, and and talking to these people and listening to them. But I, I do think that this is good news for both Schiff and Porter, right? It does show that there is familiarity, that they don't <clears throat> seem to have a lot of you know, uh, uh, unhappy Democrats. Um, But, you know, we've been talking about this for several weeks. I mean, this could be all told, what, a hundred million dollar race? I mean, this is going to be expensive no matter what, but especially given those undecided numbers, you'd think that that's really where the money is going to need to go is just introducing themselves. Right. And this uh, this primary is going to be most likely in March, unless for some reason it gets separated out, the primary from the pre- from the presidential primary. But let's assume it's in March. If, you know, a Republican jumps in, and we don't know that there will be one, 
that's going to be the, probably the ball game, quite honestly, because the Republican will probably be in the top two against whichever Democrat comes in first. Uh, or, you know, and so I guess the question is, are we going to have two Democrats running off in November or a Democrat and a Republican? We don't know that. Uh, but clearly, uh, you know, it's, it's a really uphill climb for any Republican to win statewide. That hasn't happened since 20, uh, 2006. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who some people <laughs> said would he jump in, but we don't think so. We don't think so. All right. Well, let's uh, turn to another kind of big issue in California. This is um, the price of gas and oil, not just an issue here, an issue internationally. Uh, we saw finally, uh, months after the governor called on lawmakers to do something about the spikes in gas prices that we all lived through last year. First hearing, four hours in the state capitol. This was an informational hearing, so nothing decided. But it was really an opportunity for his administration to kind of lay out um, <clears throat> their still semi-undefined proposal to basically assess a penalty on oil companies if their profits hit sort of a certain point, um, which is undefined. <laughs> um, but also, to me, the most interesting part is they really talked a lot about the kind of transparency that the bill by Nancy Skinner out of Oakland, based on what the governor called for, um, <clears throat> Essentially, what a lot of experts spent the four hours saying is we just don't know why oil prices are what they are. And we might understand more or be able to keep them down if we had more information. Well, and that's a very good point. At the same time, if you don't know why they're so high, how can you do something to bring them down if you're not really sure what is in the first place making them high? I think certainly more information would be helpful for sure. You know, I was struck by, you know, Gavin Newsom has been saying all along that it's greed. Greed is the explanation that gas prices are two dollars or more uh, per gallon in California than they are in other states. Uh, but, you know, it's it's also a market-based economy. We have a different kind of gas, a cleaner gas here in California that can account for some of the higher price, but certainly not all of it. And it did seem that there were a lot of questions, even among the Democrats, uh, mm -hmm. as to whether or not this could really work and really help consumers. Yeah, and I think that is an open question. I mean, again, without details of what exactly the mechanism is for deciding what is you know, an, 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 an unfair profit, right? And then when do we assess what, of course, the administration is calling a penalty, what opponents are calling a tax. Um, but I do think that for me as sort of a lay person who, quite frankly, is not deeply involved in energy markets or understands the kind of... <laughs> <laughs> like all of this. It was just interesting to hear, you know, some of the sort of smartest people in state government who do this type of data analysis on all kinds of other, you know, sort of industries for a living just say there are so many questions we don't have answers to. The oil companies say, we can't give you that information um, because of antitrust concerns. I kind of just wonder if that's where things end up. If this penalty maybe, you know, doesn't go very far. But if the state could get more information, could legislate the requirement for more information, that in itself would be a huge win. Because what we heard this week was that for 40 years, lawmakers and policymakers have been talking about getting more information and they've never succeeded. Um, so I'll be watching that. But, you know, I... I it's, it was a slow start for something we've all waited months to start. And not really any more details about what the final uh, bill might no. look like. But there's time. There's, there's time. time. Yeah. All right. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by United Farm Workers Union President Teresa Romero. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are thrilled to welcome Teresa Romero. She's president of the United Farm Workers Union, also known as UFW. Teresa, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're very excited to have you. And, you know, we like to start at the beginning. So we would love to hear about the beginning of your life. You were born in Mexico City, but I think you grew up in Guadalajara, one of six kids. What was your childhood like? You know, I had a very normal, regular childhood. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad, my dad worked. Uh, he worked for many years in the same company, where he started as a a low level mechanic and for for he worked for a tortilla machine company, and he you know over the years he also became the manager or one of their biggest offices, and that's why we had to move to Guadalajara. Mm-hmm. It was a very normal life, you know, with with mom at home and dad working. Two big cities, Guadalajara and Mexico City. Um, yes. I'm wondering about your grandmother, because I know that I believe she was Zapotec uh, and very you know, close to you. Tell us about your grandma and what influence she had on you and the family. You know, she was, and years later, I learned more about the Zapotecan um, culture, but she was a very strong woman. She was a woman who, as we were growing up, she would say, you can do it all. You, you, whatever you can put your mind to it, you can do it all. And, and you know, I grew up understanding that, yeah, I'm a girl and I'm a girl, especially in Mexico, where, you know, many of the women stay home and stay with the family. But my grandmother was was one who supported us through everything. Um, she was a woman who barely, you know, when she got married, didn't even speak Spanish. She all she spoke was uh, Zapotecan. So, um to the end of his of her life, her Spanish was also very limited. That's incredible. Um, did you? I, I I know I read that you've talked about education being very important to your family. Um, how did that manifest? And and I mean, what? Yeah, was there ever pressure as a woman to not sort of focus on that part of your life? You know, my mom, because of course, probably also heard it from her mother, my grandmother wanted all of her kids to go to school to get a, a whatever education we wanted and we didn't get the pressure of specific things that she wanted us to do she just said what do you want what do you want to do when you grow up what is important to you and we all got an education but i i, I believe my grandmother's influence to this day is a big part of my life hmm. how did you end up coming to california um <laughs> 
I was hoping to come here like, you know, I was I had just finished uh, college. I wanted to come and I wanted to travel and I wanted to explore and then, you know, take a year and go back and um, work in Mexico. But as I was here, um, you know, my family wanted to also come. They wanted to to explore. They wanted to so they wanted to be here. So it was. It changed my perspective. You know, I started working. Um, How old were I got you a when good you job. came here? 24. Okay. And um, they, they, you know, little by little, they started coming until all of them were here. And even my parents came in. Uh, to, this, to this day, all of us are U.S. citizens. Huh. So when you came, I mean, had you gone to college in Mexico? Were you just working? Like, I had gone that? to I, just had finished finished college in Mexico. I finished college in Mexico and I stayed for a few months trying to figure out what I was going to do. I had a part-time job and then I decided to come against my father's will because he was so concerned. What are you going to do there all by yourself? You don't speak the language. But, you know, I had that grandma in me and 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 I needed to try it. Yeah. How did you find California, you know, as a place to be, you know, uh, without, you know, having to learn the language, coming from a different country, a different culture? Uh, what was that transition like? It is difficult. Um, I thought I'd, I I'd learned, I had, you know, I had some knowledge of English because I studied in high school and I studied in, 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 in college. But when I got here and I started, I tried to have a conversation, it was very difficult. I, I, I realized that I did not... Uh, know the English that I needed and you know being by yourself not speaking the language not having family culture is different I remember be going to the first Mexican restaurant and I order a tostada and they brought me some elaborate thing and I said no I order a tostada and they said yeah this is a tostada <laughs> <laughs> it's a California tostada <laughs> everything's bigger here tostada. So, <laughs> it took a uh, uh, it took a while to adjust my, adjust uh I, my my way of learning English, I remember I would not watch TV in Spanish. Everything was in English. The radio was in English. And I would learn five to ten sentences every day that I would repeat loudly. So I'm in the I'm in the store, I'm going somewhere and I'm talking to myself and people and I were looking at me saying, What's wrong with this woman? But that helped me a lot. That's how I really learned how to speak English. I, I can uh, empathize with this as somebody who learned Spanish in a classroom and then realized how little I knew when I went to Spanish-speaking countries, including Mexico. Um, so you're here, you're learning the language. You end up in construction management consulting. What what did that look like? How did that happen? No, but that was afterwards. I first started working with, and for many years, uh, at a law firm oh, okay. that helped people with immigration issues, that helped people with workers' compensation issues. I remember at that time we we would help farm workers on their immigration issues. Never to, you know, even in my wildest dreams, I thought that I was going to end up, you know, with the UFW. Uh, the, the construction company became later. Um, was I was this like clerical work you were doing? At the with, law the, firm? with the law firm, yeah, I was man. I was the manager of the law firm. Okay. I would manage all the cases, the attorneys, the people, the staff. So I managed the entire thing, wow. but the attorneys, of course, uh, uh, handled the cases. And after that, I started working. Uh, no, I created a a, um, a construction, not a construction firm, a consulting firm that managed construction projects for school districts. Oh. Um, and and you know, in two thousand eight, when the 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 recession hit. 
construction is one of the things that unfortunately uh, gets affected first. Mm. And I started looking for work and I ended up here. Mm. Yeah, so you were you started off you were working as an assistant to the president, um, but it was supposed to be temporary. How did it how did you end up where you are now? <laughs> you know, it was in my mind I thought I can do this 2-3 years and then I go back to my business. But you know, working with Arturo, he I was very hands-on and I immediately started uh going to meetings with workers hearing the workers' challenges, hearing the workers' issues, hearing how difficult the work is. And after after probably six months of interacting with workers, I thought to myself, I'm not going anywhere. This is this is where I need to be. Did you feel like the feeling was mutual? Because as we've kind of laid out, you weren't a farm worker prior to this. And I and I wonder if there was ever pushback on that. You know, it wasn't. I'm an immigrant. I know what what people go through. I know the fears that they they have. I I've heard from them how they wanted to see their families that they haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years. And that really hit me. I still cry when I when I have these conversations. But that really hit me because I understood that even though I went through some challenges, nothing compared to farm workers. And I was I was blessed to to be received f- by farm workers as, as one of them, even though I have never worked in the fields. Mm. You mentioned that you, when you grew up in Mexico, you know, women sort of had their place and it wasn't necessarily at the top of the, of the corporation or the union. Um, what kind of sexism uh, or you know any, any anti-female attitude or harassment did you did you notice working your way up in the union oh my god no you know arturo is what well, he was my mentor he was and he is a very um you know he dedicated his life to the to farm workers and he knew that what we what what we were doing was for farm workers so his focus the board uh, my co-workers, everything was, what can we do together to improve the lives of farm workers? I I did not, like I said, in, at first my focus was going to be a short term, but I never, I never experienced that uh, within the union. When we say that we want farm workers to be treated with respect and dignity, we start at home. We We do that within the union. And you're talking, of course, about Arturo Rodriguez, who was the former yes. UFW president. Uh, you are only the third, we should say, Cesar Chavez was the first. I-, I wonder, though, to Scott's point, I mean, you are, and we're going to get to the politics in this of a minute, but a lot of your job is outward facing, too, right? It's 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 interfacing yes. with farm workers, but it's also interfacing with state lawmakers, policymakers, the governor. Um, do you think you bring anything different to the role because you're a woman uh, when it comes to that kind of outward facing stuff? You know, I, I do. I do. Uh, when we talk, when I talk to farm workers and, and when I talk to women and they hear my story and they hear that I came, you know, like them without knowing the language, without knowing anybody, they are, they feel inspired. They feel that they have more within them to give and they, they, they feel encouraged. Um, I have been you know, dealing with at the federal level and and the state level with elected officials who understand the 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 history of the UFW, the work that we do, and that as a union we do not just focus on representing 
workers through a union contract. But we do things that would impact the lives of farm workers, whether they have a union or not. And having that history, having that respect for the union, it translates to me as a person. But this comes from 60 years of, of history. Farm workers were unexpectedly and tragically at the focus of the shootings in Half Moon Bay a few weeks ago, and governor went down there, was shocked at the housing conditions and so on. What did you make of that, uh, his reaction to that? Uh, because I would think that there's deplorable housing for farm workers all over the state and shouldn't really be that surprising given how little political power they have. You know, and, and that is key. People assume that they know. And that's why when we do this work, when we marched last year, when we met with the governor, when we meet with uh, 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 elected officials in D.C., I'm not the only face. We bring farm workers. I can be a voice for farm workers, but nobody can explain their challenges better than themselves. So many, many, I don't know if you know, but last year we invited all 100 senators to work in the fields. Because go? we want them to go. Two of them, two of them did none of, it. None of them left their jobs, um, huh? Alex, pardon me? None of them left their Senate jobs to do full-time work? No, <laughs> no, no, no. One of them was Alex Padilla. He came to California, and the other one was Cory Booker. Alex Padilla is walking next to a worker uh, that is fast, as fast as they you can ever imagine. And he starts a conversation with him and said, how long have you been doing this? And the, and, and the worker said, 50 years. He says, 50 years? How old are you? He said, 70. And the, and, and, and the senator said, why don't you retire? And he says, because if I retired, even though I pay taxes, I don't get Social Security. So if I don't work, I can't pay my rent. And this is the reality that we see, and and we I, we see it firsthand. And the Half Moon uh, Bay workers, uh, it is just an example of what we know and we hear from workers throughout the country. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, this is something that brings attention. And in many cases, after a week or two, seven people die. But after a week or two, people don't don't talk about it anymore. Yeah. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I am Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We're talking to UFW President Teresa Romero. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. Teresa, I wonder, um, you know, UFW obviously it got its start in California. Uh, Delano, we were discussing this before we came on air, the, the birthplace of the movement in the Central Valley. But these days, yes. the union does not represent a lot of workers. A lot of what your work seems to be is advocacy. Can you just talk about that? And then, like, how do you view this job? What is the main role of UFW in 2023? You know, I, you probably know that farm workers were excluded from any labor rights in the 1930s. And this was, a there were racist reasons, not, no, nothing more. Unfortunately, we have a workforce that is largely undocumented. And when farm workers organize, when farm workers come to us with issues and they, when they know that we're gonna, are going to organize, they're afraid. They get fired. They have family members in the same farm and everybody gets fired. There have been cases where workers have been deported 
organizing. So when that so much is at stake that your life is going to, as it is, you have um, work that is seasonal. If you lose your job, you don't have a way to support your family. The reason we marched last year, last year, uh, over 335 miles uh, in the middle of summer, was because we wanted uh, Governor Newsom to have to sign our legislation, a legislation that would make it safer for farm workers to vote for union representation. That's what they need. When Caesar started the union, he understood that it was that they needed more than a union. At that point, at that time, he started with uh, a, a clinics. You know, we had clinics in different places that would. Uh, help from workers and we continue to do that we have created different programs we do legislative work we do political work and this bill in california is going to help us uh organize workers in a way that is safe in and when you think about it like for example farm workers are not entitled to overtime pay workers come uh, 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 protections in other states. In order to get this, we have to do it state by state because they were excluded from the NLRB. Hmm. So it's it's there are many challenges that we face and many challenges farm workers face. But when when their life when their livelihood is at risk, they prefer to to deal with abuses, with not getting paid, with uh, bad housing, then 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 speak up. There was a study done by researchers at UC Merced recently that said there are essentially no unionized California farm workers. You know, the number of active members is so low that it actually just falls within the margin of error. And, and critics of UFW say, well, the union hasn't put its shoulder to the wheel and done the hard work of organizing. What's your response to that? That is not true. We have been here for 60 years. We have been organizing workers. We have seen the challenges. Just put yourself, try to put yourself in their shoes, that they know that they're going that the, the chances of getting deported, getting fired, the family members of the same uh, company getting fired is something that they don't want to risk. They have children. You know, we had the pandemic. During the pandemic, we all, you and I, Scott, are working from home today, and they don't have that opportunity to work from home. They had to continue working. What did we do? We went and got donations of masks so we can distribute throughout Washington, Oregon, and California. So it is, farm workers were not even, felt, they didn't feel comfortable asking for uh, protective equipment. They were working with whatever they had. So there's other things that we're doing to, imp our goal is to impact the lives of farm workers. We believe that collective bargaining is the best way to do it. But there are other ways as we, we try to do uh, heat illness protection so workers don't die because of high temperatures. Yeah. So those are the things that we're trying to do to impact a large number of workers. You've also talked a lot about immigration reform as being one of the top priorities of UFW. And I'm wondering if that is in part because, I mean, obviously there's a lot of good reasons for it from your perspective, but it would probably make it easier to organize and get farm workers' rights if a lot of them weren't as worried about being deported. Of course. Immigration is something that we have been working on for many years. We came very close uh, last year, but unfortunately, there were very um, some some organizations, uh, girls organizations that wanted more. We compromise. We know how important immigration is for our members, we, and we don't assume. We sit down with workers, members and non-members, and ask them, 
what they want. We tell them what it is that they want and what they're willing to compromise. We're guided by the workers. And unfortunately, although we passed this bill in this in the House twice, um, in 2019 and 2020, we could not get uh, uh, 60 uh senators to support it 10 of them needed to be republicans we couldn't get them yeah well the work that you do is and the work that your people you represent do is is so serious and hard and i'm wondering what do you do for fun like what do you do to yeah, just let you, loose <laughs> and you know kind of let go relax, of all the stress you know like i said i i i worked with arturo and and i learned from him that we give um many hours to 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 the work that we do I love reading. I love traveling. I haven't had much of a time of traveling, but um, I have now a one-year-old granddaughter. Mm. So that is uh, where I try to spend most of my free time with that little girl um, because it's right now it's, it's, she's my new toy. <laughs> so do you still have family in Mexico? I have uh, aunts, um, uncles, cousins. Yes. Um, you know, my parents, uh, uh, family, siblings have passed away except for one brother, uh, my my father's brother, who just turned 93 years old hmm. and went to Mexico during uh, December to to celebrate his 93rd birthday and was able to see a lot of my family members that hadn't, I hadn't seen in a long time. But your abuela in California. <laughs> I am. And I'm, I'm loving it. <laughs> Thank you. UFW Thank you so President Teresa Romero, we really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's going to do it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Christopher Beale, and our producer is Guy Marzarotti. I'm Scott Schaefer. Find more of KQED's politics coverage by subscribing to our Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next week. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Fettah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.